Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. This week, Team Realignment packed up our bags pretty bright and early, and we went down to the State Department, where we had a wide-ranging conversation with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. This was actually a really cool opportunity for us, and it's because there's nobody else who is more at the center of the realignment. I mean, the realignment is about foreign policy, it's about economics, it's about technology, and as America's chief diplomat, Mike Pompeo interfaces with everybody from President Xi Jinping of China to the President of the United States. He's making policy every day on a day-to-day level. So during the episode, we actually started off with a pretty cool opportunity to unpack a recent speech which the Secretary gave. It was all about his articulation of what Sagar really talked about as the best sort of statement about what a Trump doctrine would look like. And it was this idea that the foreign policy of this country was founded under the idea of realism, respect, and restraint, and how his critique of the foreign policy of previous administrations, both Republican and Democrat, he also talks about how this isn't a political point, it's a policy point, um, have failed and sort of strayed from those values. So he articulated how he thinks they're implementing those three ideas. What was particularly cool is after we took a 30,000-foot view of what connecting our history and our foreign policy looks like is that we got to dig into some of the specifics on China. So China really is the ultimate realignment issue is what we talk about here all the time. But in D.C., when we talk about China, we're talking about trade. We're talking about intellectual property theft. It's stuff that really doesn't connect to most Americans and the way that they live their day-to-day lives. But what was most interesting is we actually got to connect to those issues by talking about the NBA and particularly about Hollywood. Yeah, and everyone saw it. The GM of the Houston Rockets tweeted out support for the Hong Kong protesters. You had this huge backlash, and then everyone from LeBron James to Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports was weighing in. There's all this controversy because for years, the NBA, which is known as one of the more activist, progressive sports leagues in this country, has been trying to get into the Chinese market. And now that they've actually gotten in, they have to play by China's rules because we want to get access to this massive market of billions of people who are hungry for the Houston Rockets and hungry for these sort of games. You're going to have to sort of wade into these controversies even if you don't want to. And what I liked about what the secretary talks about here is that he's like, he doesn't blame American companies for trying to find the lure of the Chinese market. Really about the blame is about Chinese policy. It's about American policy, really, about not setting forth real standards and rules that allow American companies to do business in China and also not fall victim to Chinese censorship. And this was even more relevant when we talked about the Hollywood context. So I brought up, you know, I have a personal pet peeve, which is that the jacket, the iconic jacket, Jacket in Top Gun, Tom Cruise's jacket, the patch was changed in order to not offend the Chinese by including the Taiwanese and the Japanese flag. And he, he had a great joke about how he, we all hope as in a country that Top Gun 2 will be just as good as the first one. But the truth is, and we got into this, is that Top Gun is financed by Tencent Pictures. Now, what is Tencent? Tencent's a media conglomerate that finances actually a lot of big pictures that most people have seen. Wonder Woman, the Transformers spinoff Bumblebee, even the new Mr. Rogers movie is financed by Tencent. So you're actually seeing, and the secretary talks about this, because China only allows a limited number of American movies into the country, into this massive market that, like the NBA, Hollywood wants to get in on, they're seeing American companies self-censoring. It's not as if there's a sort of member of the Chinese Communist Party sitting on site during the shoot saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. Because the system is opaque, because it's not clear which movies will be let in and which movies won't be, companies themselves are choosing to eliminate things. And that's incredibly controversial. And I think the best part of this real discussion was that this is not about personalities. This wasn't about 
about, you know, Mike Pompeo. This wasn't about Donald Trump himself. This is about huge forces shaping American politics and American life. And about whoever is sitting in the Oval Office, this is going to be a problem for the NBA, for Hollywood, and really for all of us. And it, and his laser-focused view on those issues and what they're doing at the State Department, which you may not see in the headlines, was the best part of our discussion. Let's dive in. Mr. Secretary, welcome to The Realignment. It's great to be with you both this morning. Thanks for joining us. Mr. Secretary, the reason we wanted to have you on, aside from literally being the Secretary of State of the United States, is that you're a pivotal figure in what the realignment is really all about. We see that as the rules and the systems that have undergirded American politics for many decades, how we approach the free market, how we cope with technological change and the great power competition with China is really beginning to is beginning to change and, and it's a sea change in American politics. Yeah, and I think that... We are thinking and wanting to know, how do you conceive of your role in this specific moment? Because obviously you run the State Department, but also prior Secretary of State, whether that's John Quincy Adams and those sort of people like that, have played a deeper sort of policy um, philosophical role. So how do you conceive of yourself? So that's a, a good set of questions, and thanks for having me on the show. Of course. We are at a, uh, a, a real pivotal moment in, in history, and if you look at the President's National Security Strategy, you can see that. It was a recognition that these uh, great power struggles are upon us and the challenge that uh, the Chinese Communist Party presents to uh, the fundamental principles that uh, undergird the international system. And so as as for my role, I I have this incredible privilege to lead the State Department, uh, 70,000 great people, um, but I also perform an important function for the president to try to deliver him a set of uh, rational policy recommendations based upon a data set uh, they give him, get him to uh, a place where he can achieve what he's laid out in that national security strategy to work as part of the team, uh, Secretary of Defense, myself, uh, Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of Commerce, all the people who have an element of American power mm-hmm. and uh, the capacity to uh, deliver on behalf of the America, uh, President's America First Division uh, to be part of that team to deliver uh, really good recommendations and option sets for the president. So, Mr. Secretary, you recently gave a speech at the Claremont Institute where you articulated, I think, the closest thing that I've seen yet to a Trump doctrine, if there is such a thing. And the point of the speech was how the founders articulated a foreign policy based upon a couple of things. First, realism, restraint, and respect. What did you mean by those three things in particular? So that was an important set of remarks to your point. This was uh, an effort to provide a uh, first pass at the philosophical underpinnings of what it is we're trying to achieve. Uh, you know, as for realism, we'd watched previous administrations. This is not political. Uh, presidents from both parties uh, operate on a historical set of assumptions that we believe uh, no longer are functional, mm-hmm. no longer operative. Uh, and in each case, we need to go look at them and ask the, the central question of do the institutions that were built around those underpinnings, do they work? Uh, so whether that's the UN or uh, uh, the World Trade Organization or, or whatever institution it may be, NATO, uh, are they functional? Are they fit for purpose? Do they work in our times? These things are now uh, decades on, and it is a very reasonable thing to reevaluate them. So we've begun to do that, and whether it was uh, the previous administration's policy on Iran, which was predicated on the idea that if you signed a deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran with these uh, clerics, uh, they'd behave normally. That was a failure. We were realistic and said that doesn't work. Uh, Paris Climate Accord uh, had this theory of the case and 
we, we could see that it wasn't realistic. It wasn't built on a set of principles that would deliver even the outcomes stated there. So it was the ability to speak the truth about things that are functional, things that aren't, and try to build a set of policies off uh, a very realistic view. The second uh, idea was respect. Uh, it, it's, it's central. Uh, we believe the founders had it right. Uh, this idea that every human being is endowed by their creator with a, a set of uh, rights uh, that come from God and that every human has dignity by nature of the humanity is central to understanding how America's diplomacy ought to work. Uh, and then finally, there's this there's this idea of restraint that is deeply buried in the founders' understanding. It's written, it's in the Constitution about mm-hmm. ensuring that America act in ways that are... Uh, acknowledging that every nation state is sovereign and they have their right to make their own decisions uh, and trying to have respect for that in every place that one can and working against a set of uh, a set of principles that use that nation state as the central animating force of America's diplomacy and foreign policy around the world to deliver outcomes on behalf of the American people. So I liked your reference to institutions, whether that's the UN and these institutions were made post-1945, after World War II. You know, the, the State Department, you know, the, the, the White House played a role in setting those things up. And you also talk about the post-Cold War era, how it was sort of undergirded, and this sort of relates to um, realism. There was too much optimism about the ability of these institutions to shape regimes, whether they were hostile, whether they were sort of um, older institutions like NATO. But something I'm wondering is, how do we balance the need to be realist with the need to also be optimistic? Because I think that's mm-hmm. something that's true about America in of itself, right? This is a place where people come here to dream and build things. Yeah. How do we balance those two things? I don't think there's a balance there. I actually think they are mutually reinforcing. Mm-hmm. Uh, America is a centrally, uh, uh, an essentially optimistic nation built on the idea that the next generation will live lives that are better and more successful, we're innovative, we're creative, we work hard, uh, we, we have faith, we're uh, a nation of faith uh, that has at its very center optimism. Um, but that optimism has to be girded in a, a central set of understandings about what's real mm-hmm. and what's truthful. And you you can't have one without the other. You can't, in my view, uh, live in a fantasy world and say, boy, I hope this works out well. You have to actually build the systems and processes so that you can structurally achieve those things which you are optimistic will be uh, will be achieved. And what you pointed out in that speech was that in the post-1945 era is that many of the, the three things, realism, restraint, and respect, were kind of strayed from in the post-World War II order. What went wrong exactly? Where did we, where, because there was something there about the rules-based international order and the American leading of that, but where did it go astray? Was it in 1992 in the post-Cold War era? Where, where would you pinpoint it? So you do, you have three moments. You all have identified two of them. You have the post-World War II set of institutions that were built uh, built on the central premise of, right, uh, we don't want to fight these global wars any longer, and so build out institutions. Uh, they, they, they are certainly right for their time, I think. And then you have the Cold War. Uh, it was what I was a young soldier in uh, late 1980s. Um, we saw the end of that, and it was an American success story, and frankly, a, uh, a success story for the world that said we're going to take down this uh, communist threat from the Soviet Union. You then have a third moment, I call it the post-9-11 time period, where right. The uh, international order becomes very focused on fighting terrorism. Um, Every one of those challenges still remains today. None none of those uh, problem sets have been completely limited. But if you ask where those institutions went wrong, it's it's that nations can become complacent. And importantly, their peoples can become complacent. If they believe that these central institutions can be left to their own accord and 
deliver on these outcomes that will fundamentally fail if the if uh, if a nation isn't prepared to expend the resources it needs to defend itself, it will fail. In America's case, right, the, uh, lots of folks have talked about this as a republic. If you can keep it, that requires a certain vigilance, and the European nations need to do that. African nations need to do that. And as threats arise, today we see this challenge from the Chinese Communist Party. As threats arise, we need to make sure that those institutions are flexible enough and sufficiently robust to deliver on what their people are demanding. And Every leader, uh, whether it's a political leader at the local level or a state level, has an obligation to make sure and talk directly to their constituents about the need to ensure that there is security. Absent that, all the things we want to talk about for an economy to grow, for individual freedom, uh, they'll falter because there are bad actors in the world. Evil remains, and America needs to have a central role in working to make sure that we protect the American people from those very threats. And before we get to the future, which you've referenced, we, we have to sort of think about the position of history. So when you sort of think about what your great-grandchildren would look at when they're reading their history textbooks, <laughs> you know, if you sort of think about the Monroe Doctrine, you know, you look at, you know, mm-hmm. James Monroe, um, John Quincy Adams, that was sort of them determining the European powers that the Western Hemisphere was off limits. You have Theodore Roosevelt and William McKinley saying that the United States was entering in the world stage, the post-World War order that we talked about with Harry Truman. How do you think people and future generations are going to conceive of this specific moment um, and the role that you and the administration played in that? So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. um, ha- having said that, there there are, and I, the Claremont speech laid them out, there are these central underpinnings, this, uh, this refocusing that we think is absolutely imperative, and it will take time. You know, the American bureaucracy moves slowly. Yes. <laughs> uh, when, and that's, that's okay. Democracy sometimes demands that, right? It is it, to be thoughtful about how you move. Uh, but if we manage to uh, redirect the American national security establishment to taking on the challenges of today, uh, the challenges that are from uh, transnational migration, the challenges that are presented by a rising Chinese Communist Party, the technological challenge you referred to yes. briefly, right, to make sure that we are capable of ensuring that there is a a Western, a rules-based system in the technology world, if we can if we can achieve those things of redirecting resources and focus and talent, the human capital that America abounds in. If we can do those things well, uh, then someone else will name it. Someone else will give it some some theory of the case. Um, but but we will have turned it in the right direction. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things you spend your time thinking of that name. You're probably not doing a great job. <laughs> right, but right. I just want to get to a quick thing you said. You know, government in our system is deliberative. It's not quick moving. And something that we have to think about in this moment is our system itself, because that system's under challenge. And I think that 10 years ago, you had a lot of people saying, look at the Chinese government. They build things quickly. It's fast moving. People question whether our system of government can meet these challenges. How do you think of those sort of like deeper philosophical questions about government? Yeah. So look, there's days I wish we all moved faster here, uh, <laughs> to be sure, including right. me and, and my team here at the State Department. That, that's certainly true. Uh, but I have a core belief. Uh, this this document that our founders drafted was clever beyond all imagination. Uh, it was rooted in history and philosophy that uh, no other country has as its central pillar. Uh, we also turned to markets to solve many of our problems uh, and to achieve good outcomes through the American people. I believe that those twin pillars, right, the Constitution and this central theory of freedom uh, will ultimately put America, even if it means we're slower on Wednesday than somebody else is, uh, will ultimately drive us to success. I, I think I think markets fundamentally work. I think I think we need to make sure that markets are the driving force globally for trade. It's one of the things President Trump is certainly very focused on. 
And if we can achieve that, if we get that outcome, uh, America will continue to be the most mm. exceptional nation. And, and to that point, Mr. Secretary, I mean, if there's one area where all all of the issue areas converge for the realignment, technology and free market, how we think about free markets and our open economic system, and China, of course, is actually the rise of the Chinese Communist Party and so much of the decimation of our own middle class and manufacturing base. So people who are not invested right now in foreign policy generally, they have viscerally reacted to the situation with the NBA. And there's you know some recent comments by um, star player LeBron James about this particular issue and almost an apologism for um, for one of the, you know, the general manager of the Houston Rockets for speaking out on behalf of these Hong Kong protesters. Now, this is the first instance, the first high-profile instance that we've seen of the Chinese Communist Party attempting to exert their power to limit the free speech of an American citizen on American soil. As the chief diplomat of this country, how do you think through such a big and structural problem? So two comments, and then, mm. then uh, I'll try to get to the central premise. First is, uh, we have an obligation, each of us, to ensure that uh, every American has the right to speak about the things that they care deeply about, many of them will end up disagreeing with Mike Pompeo and uh, <laughs> President Trump. But but yeah. we we all we have an obligation to protect that. Now, second, the one of the things I think that's caught the uh, American people's attention on this particular issue is uh, some have spoken about this uh, moral equivalence. Mm-hmm. There's no moral equivalence between the Chinese Communist Party and the greatness of American democracy. Uh, they are fundamentally different, and we should we should be very clear about that. Third. Uh, when it comes to uh, businesses and how they interact, this is these these things in the NBA. They're uh, they're tip of the iceberg. This has been going on yes. for some time. You're right. This has got America's attention in a way. Some of these other incidents have not. We collectively, and this includes the private sector in the United States, needs to make sure that the long arm of Beijing trying to reach in uh, is something that they're deeply aware of. They take account of, and that in the end. Uh, a short-term benefit, some idea that you can make money at expense mm. of your principles, almost always fails. Mm. It almost always leads uh, you down a path which will actually harm the very central underpinning of what it is you were trying to do. And so we're encouraging uh, uh, everyone who's engaged in this to come talk to what we're doing so they can see this is state-directed activity against Americans. American diplomats have a responsibility to make sure that every citizen understands both the risks and the opportunities and give them ideas about how they might respond. And in your speech, you have this line, which I liked, which is that on China, the president has taken action to stop China from stealing our stuff, right? So that's intellectual property, and that was a long-running issue that we've had. But what's interesting for me is I think part of the reason why a lot of the players and managers and officials at the NBA, Marriott, Blizzard Entertainment have struggled is because they, they lack, I think, a language and understanding of what's sort of going on here. So obviously, you said it yourself, right? There's a free market. There's government. How do you think people and American citizens should conceive of this weird mix of policy, but also wanting to sell shoes, right? Yeah. It, it's yeah, it's yeah. difficult, right? You want to be sympathetic to people. Yeah, I, I completely get it. So I, I had a business before I came to Congress. We operated in China. We had a little tiny operation in uh, Shanghai. We sold stuff there. We purchased stuff there. Uh, so I, I, I want business to succeed. It's a big market. Frankly, I want the Chinese economy to grow as well. This isn't about containing the Chinese economy or harming the Chinese people. 
what we want to make sure is, and what President Trump has been focused on, is making sure that this is fair. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Uh, to your point, I use stealing our stuff. That's probably a little bit of slang from Kansas. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it is. But it's imp- understandable yeah. to, most, to most people. And, and tragic. I think about the little business that I had. We had intellectual property, too. We didn't have patents, but we had engineers doing, mm-hmm. doing work. We had a, a process value that we understood very deeply. And I've watched American business go to China and have this taken away from them. It has destroyed jobs in the United States. It's cost the American economy growth and potential. And so our citizens are worse off for that. Mm. When I when we talk about this, we need to just do it with uh, out of motion and just speak about this with great clarity, which says, look, yeah, there is a risk if you move your stuff into China today, if you move your product or your workflow there, you need to be cognizant of that. We have a responsibility, the United States government, to help protect your information and your data sets. Uh, as best we can, and we together can collectively ensure that we get to a situation, not just with China, but with other countries who are engaged in this kind of behavior uh, that denies them the capacity to treat American mm. citizens unfairly. And, and a very high-profile case that was preceded the NBA was actually uh, the jacket on, so Top Gun, obviously an iconic American yeah. movie, the, the patch on the back of Tom Cruise's iconic jacket was changed in order to not offend in the a Chinese sequel. audience in their sequel. And, I mean, that was largely seen as a result of Tencent Pictures, which is part of a large Chinese media conglomerate, financing that picture. What is there to be done about it when the commanding heights of American culture seem to be really infiltrated by Chinese capital? So first things first, yeah. we all hope Top Gun 2 is as good as Top Gun 1. <laughs> so we were going to ask you, do you think we need a Top <laughs> yeah, Gun 2? Because this, this is the debate. That is so, a big central question. So, uh, so <laughs> I, w- I will wait and see. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I am very hopeful. Um, to, to your point, yeah. uh, you know, I, I went and spoke to the MPA board of directors. It's now been mm-hmm. a couple weeks back, and I spoke to them about this. Today, you know, we're limited. Only 37 movies a year, American movies, can be sold into the Chinese market. And the Chinese and American business have asked, can you – can you help us with that? And I'm perfectly prepared to help uh, American companies sell into the Chinese market. What I asked in return, or not in <laughs> return, but the additional point that I made was you you can't allow them to censor your, your material. You, it, it, is, it is impermissible. You wouldn't let the American government tell you what you could or could not put in your movie. Right. You might let us rate it, right, <laughs> yeah. uh, so that it's appropriate, but you wouldn't let us tell you what you could put in your movie, certainly not with respect to political issues. And you ought not let the Chinese government do that as well. And um, we, the State Department, have a responsibility to try and help them do that, to try and convince the Chinese government it's not appropriate to do that. Um, We also think that the Chinese people are highly capable of evaluating information right. themselves. Yeah. Free markets, so, free so people. So I, I have confidence idea, that yeah, uh, yeah. free people in China will <laughs> uh, will see a movie and they'll say that was about American power. I don't like that. Or right. it was yeah, about right. they'll they'll make their own judgments and there'll be a, there's a 1.5 billion Chinese people that they'll, they'll make their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll form their. They they ought to be permitted that. And we, uh, American institutions, cultural arts institutions, in this case the um, Motion Picture Association, the movie makers. Uh, their creative genius ought not to be uh, denied from the Chinese people. They ought to get a chance to see it, too. So we've been speaking about entertainment, but our sort of last bit on this is what has been the administration's policy response to these sort of things that everyone's talking about now, which is the, the Hong Kong protests. You have um, the Uyghurs in Western China. How are you conceiving of the role we play? Because also this speaks to your we have to deal with restraint. We have to think of restraint and respect. How do we sort of put those together? So it's a. a You mentioned two in particular. Maybe I'll just address those as exemplars of how we've thought about this. Uh, With respect to Hong Kong, the president's been unambiguous. In this case, the Chinese have a commitment. They made a global commitment, an international commitment they made. Uh, They made an agreement with the Brits, submitted it to the UN. 
uh, that says there'll be one country and two systems. So there's a set of freedoms that they will provide to the people of Hong Kong that are different and apart right. from any commitment they made to the people in mainland China. And we have been determined to ask the Chinese government to simply honor their commitment, not to break a promise. We've seen this. This is the central problem of the Chinese Communist Party, right? Xi Jinping said, I won't put weapon systems in the South China Sea. He broke his promise. In Hong Kong, too, uh, we want to make sure that they don't break their promise. Uh, with respect to the Uyghurs, this is uh, a, a deeply troubling situation. Uh, it is inside of China, and so they have their sovereign rights, but they are engaged in activity that is a massive violation of human rights. Mm -hmm. And we have a responsibility to speak out with clarity about that wherever we find it, whether it's an ally, whether it's someone who we don't get along with particularly well. The United States has an obligation to ensure that we're speaking to protect the human dignity of every individual. Yeah. And we still have some lighthearted questions just to finish up here, sir. How exactly do you prepare for a meeting with Kim Jong-un? Diligently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so also we, we started our conversation, we were talking about our founders, but w one of the most things that, that has really changed, obviously, is that the presidents and the secretaries of state at that time, it was much more of a cerebral job operating out of here in Washington. You, of course, have put you know, probably millions of miles upon your State Department aircraft. How do you cope with that travel schedule? What is that like in order to deal with yeah, you know, you just, yeah. uh, it's like everything in yeah. life. You uh, uh, you get up in the morning, put your helmet on, get back out yeah. there on the field. Right. Uh, I have a great team around me, too, uh, mm -hmm. who supports uh, everything I'm doing, whether it's the, the mechanics of my travel or making sure that I'm ready. I used previous questions, how do you prepare for a meeting with mm -hmm. Chairman Kim? I've got a big team helping me gather the information so that I can, in an orderly, precise way, ensure that I'm delivering the American message appropriately. Of all your predecessors, who do you admire the most? Oh goodness! I you know on, on questions like this, I I, I never I never I never like to pick my choice. Right. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll say yeah. this: um, yeah. I've had the chance to speak with uh, all of the former living directors. They've all been very kind and generous with me. Dr. Kissinger has provided uh, lots of advice. We have good discussions about what he did in China in the '70s and how that may yeah. have changed, how, how time may have changed. Uh, Jim Baker has mm -hmm. has been incredibly generous. Secretary Baker has been incredibly generous with his time to help me think through. Uh, bureaucracies, intergovernmental issues, and some of the issues he was dealing with in the Middle East during his time. I don't know that there's any one in particular that I, I think of. There are, of course, uh, amazing men and women who have occupied mm -hmm. this position. When you go back to the early days, the founders, uh, these are people one can't hope to achieve what they did, but you can certainly um, use them as an inspiration. Mm -hmm. It's a historic chair you sit on. And our final question for you, sir, what was the most unique gift that you've received as Secretary of State? Oh, goodness. Uh, uh, there's a whole handful. Yeah. Just last week, I got this great Martin guitar yeah. that we're hoping <laughs> to have run the good citizens of Nashville. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I'm hopeful policy. that'll be in the Diplomacy Museum <laughs> yeah. because I, I was deeply engaged in diplomacy there, yeah. talking to a group of Americans about how we achieve our foreign policy objectives. Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Secretary. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Secretary. Thank you. Thank you, sir. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. A big thank you to the Secretary and his team at the State Department for inviting us to engage in such an important conversation. We're really proud here at Hudson to work with the administration to advocate for policy that promotes American leadership and strength at home and abroad. 
It's because of really important work like this that Hudson is honoring Secretary Pompeo at its annual gala that's next week. We're going to look forward to having him join us again to share about his vision for U.S. foreign policy. As we mentioned, our episodes are now on YouTube, so if you'd like to see the smiling faces behind this podcast and take a look at Sagar and my killer sock game, you can go subscribe to the Hudson Institute's page and keep up to date on our latest. As always, please rate us five stars and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts.